Our Father in heaven, we thank you for providing for us these moments together when we can open up your holy word that you have preserved through the ages. Lord, with the power therein contained to open up the blind eyes to see the glories of our God, how you have governed history, how you have ordered redemption, how you have provided a sacrifice for the atonement of sins, how you have launched, Lord, into this world your church as ambassadors of your great name, and how you will, in the end, be glorified when you subdue all of your enemies and raise up for yourself, Lord Jesus, an ever-living sign of your majesty and power. Lord, as history concludes with the worship of your great name forever, with all of the ransomed and redeemed, and the new heavens and new earth forever and without end. Lord, those of us who confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, may we count it such a privilege this morning to be counted among them. And I pray that you would open our ears to hear and our spiritual eyes to see and the affections of our heart to appreciate the glories of the gospel in your scripture today. Father, I am not equipped to bring this message unless the Spirit uses me in spite of all my shortfalls. Father, we are not equipped to hear unless you open our ears, and so we pray that you would give us ears to hear your holy word this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God. What a privilege to set our attention on God's holy word, and we will do so today turning to Matthew 23, so if you have your scriptures in front of you, I'd encourage you to do so. The end of Matthew 23, verses 31 through 39 in a moment, and if you're able, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. This morning's message is titled, Glory versus Jerusalem. Glory in this instance is an attribute or perfection that refers to Christ. You could also say Christ versus Jerusalem. The reason I have chosen the term glory is we have in the prophetic record of old, a returning of the glory of God to the temple in the form of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. And we have in the record of the gospel the fulfillment of these very things in this record that we read today. And if you recall our series in Matthew thus far, we've covered the seven woes of judgment that the great King of Kings brings upon the unfaithful ones. And now today we've come to the conclusion of Jesus' sharpest words perhaps against those who are rebelliously standing in opposition and in obstinance to his kingdom. And they are the Pharisees and all they represent. So glory versus Jerusalem and the conclusion of of this judgment language comes to us in the form of Jesus' words, Matthew 23, 31 through 39. So stand with me, if you would, and let us read together these words. Again, Matthew 23, 31. The Word of God tells us this morning, Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, 
whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I have gathered, I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the holy word of God. You may be seated. Last week we studied 2 Samuel chapter 24. I might touch on just a couple verses there because there is an interesting connection in that book, in that record, the end of David's reign, and the account of him taking the census, and then the corresponding judgment that relates to our text today. In 2 Samuel 24, 18, says in Gad, that is the prophet that called David out for his sin in this matter, and also told him by what judgment God would recompense this deed. Three options of three were given, three years of famine, or three months chased by David's enemies, or three days pestilence. David chose option three. 70,000 men were killed by this plague until the angel of the Lord with sword in hand was stopped at a man's farm, the Jebusite Arana, right there on the precipice of what would be Jerusalem. Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up. Raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And then, and when Arna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we have the parallel text of this same account. That is, when Satan incited David to number the people. In chapter 22, the first verse reads as follows, Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. And David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. goes on to tell about the provisions that David made for the temple. So in this record we have in 2 Samuel 24, a pagan who was converted, a one-time Jebusite who now pays homage to David, and offers all of his livelihood, indeed his property and his oxen, as sacrifice to atone for the land that the plague might be averted. This strikes me as a contrast to the record that we have in Matthew 23 today. The contrast with respect to these events surrounding the, the temple, when placed side by side, are telling and striking. The Pharisees, who are condemned in Matthew 23, they're not pagans, they're not outsiders, they're not enemy nations, they aren't converted proselytes, they're no Jebusites. They are indeed the elite among the religious ruling class. But, among the, or, but to these, Jesus proclaims seven woes, that is, judgments, condemnations against them because of their attitude towards this 
the Son of David, Jesus Christ. These seven woes of Christ are truly bring out in the character, in the figures of this account, the anti-Arana attitude of the Pharisees. Instead of submitting and paying homage as Arana did to David, now the Son of David, God incarnate in the flesh, Jesus Christ, comes, and those who are among the ethnic heritage of Israel and the most schooled among them are obstinately opposed to him. David as king had ascended this very mount, this same mountain upon which Jesus is standing as he declares these words that we read today centuries before David had come up to intercede for the people as a plague had swept the land on account of his own sin. Aronauer in 1 Chronicles 29 or 21, his name is Ornan, a converted Jebusite paid homage to the king. As we read in 2 Samuel 24, 20, he bowed low before him. This man offered his livelihood to David to sacrifice before the Lord. As we mentioned, his property became the very real estate that the temple would occupy. Now, today, or at this point in the record in Matthew 23, we see that the sinless incarnate Son of David now ascends this very hill in the Gospel of Matthew. And in chapter 21, some pay homage. Some say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Some say, Hosanna to the Son of David. But the leaders do not. They seek to turn away the Son of God Himself from His own house. The Pharisees seek to prevent entry of Jesus Christ from His own house. And now you see why the declaration, See, your house is left to you desolate. If you do not receive the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into His own house, what kind of woes will fall upon your head? Matthew 23 answers this question. So the woes of Matthew 23 in conclusion, let us consider three aspects this morning. Context, conflict, and compassion. First of all, context. This day that we read of in Matthew 23 was prophesied long before Turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, towards the end of the Old Testament, the longing for the the Messiah among the faithful has been increasing. Now it throbs within the heart, within the chest, in every believing heart. And the prophet speaks to those who are longing for that great day. And he says certain things will happen, and among them we have in the record, Malachi 3.1, these words. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? A highlightable question. Who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord in the days of old as in former years. Listen to verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, 
against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. As a note of context, I will remind you in the woes, among them, woe number three, Matthew 23, verse 6, we have this word of condemnation against the Pharisees from Jesus our Lord. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple, that has made the gold sacred? Verse 22, he concludes his summary on unlawful oaths and vows by saying, And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. What is Jesus doing? In his very words, he is fulfilling Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. He is a swift witness against those who stand against God's will and against his Messiah. And he's calling out those who swear falsely. And he's doing so on this day of his coming as he proclaims his kingdom on, in the temple to those who know better. And again in Malachi 3 verse 2, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. There is a cleansing property that the Messiah will bring to the context, to the environment, and to the worship when he steps onto the scene. And when he comes, this is a day like no other. It's one that's reminiscent of the prophets who went before, but it's, author- it's an authority so much beyond it's absolutely unique. It leaves the crowds astonished at his authority when he says, Verily or truthfully, I say to you, and then proclaims with all the power of the heavens at his disposal what will happen now that the Lord of all the universe has arrived with his incarnate feet on the temple mount. You remember in Matthew 21, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple, again recalling the language of Malachi. Suddenly he will come to his temple. And he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus Christ owns this place, and He is the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap, bringing cleansing on the house of God. He proceeds from there to verse four, in verse 14, to the blind and the lame that gathered there in the temple. They came to Him, and He healed them. But, and this is an ominous ring that provides a context for the woes of chapter 23. But when the Pharisee, the chief priests, and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So here we see in the context, both in the record of the gospel and in the prophecies of old, that this, Matthew 23, is a day of the Lord's coming. The day of the Lord isn't only one time in history. We often think of the second coming or the coming of Christ as a one-time event, as we look forward to the day when all of time will be wrapped up in that glorious proclamation of the Messiah's triumph when He returns. But in between now and then, 
And in between when God, or in all through redemptive history, at those points of God choosing, of God's choosing, when He intervenes, they are rightly identified in Scripture as a day of the Lord, or the day of His coming. Thus the prophetic record revealed to us that this would happen. And it is taking place before the very eyes of those who are blind to see its truth in the Pharisees at the time of Jesus' coming. But now as we see it unfolding before us, perhaps with the Spirit's help this morning, we can see what they were blind to. We can be awake to the fact that Jesus Christ holds all power in His hand and we must bow in reverence and fear before Him and His Word Otherwise, we, like they did, will hear these words, How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? We must take so seriously the day of His coming. Secondly, under context, stated grievances. Again, the context of the woes provides for us uh, the background of the conclusion that we read in verses 31 through 39. And just to touch on them again briefly, Jesus says, first of all, in 23.13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. The second woe is in verse 16.15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. The third woe is the one that we just read briefly about swearing falsely. But if we take this list of seven in summary phrases, it could read something like this. Jesus says, on the basis of these wrongs, I am bringing judgment to this place and upon your heads. First of all, refusing entry to the kingdom of God. Secondly, leading others astray. Thirdly, swearing falsely. Fourthly, neglecting the intent of God's law. Fifthly, motivated by greed and self-indulgence. Motivations of greed and self-indulgence. Sixthly, harboring hypocrisy and lawlessness. And seventh, in climax, murdering the prophets. As we read in Matthew twenty three twenty nine, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. And so for these reasons, Jesus is bringing this language of judgment against these people. He is saying that your house is going to be left to you desolate, that you are not going to escape the sentence of hell, of course, accepting, uh, barring repentance alone, and that all these things that have been prophesied are like judgments that have been stored up through the centuries that will come upon this generation. Things are coming to a head in this day of the Messiah's proclamation. Again, in the context, we see, as in the closing of our passage here, this note of blessing the Messiah by recognizing Him and paying homage to Him like Arna did to David of old. In verse 39, he says, For I tell you, you will not see me again 
until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in this sense, we have a a, a bookend, if you will, of a passage or a chapter of the gospel that opened in all the way back in 21. And this was the triumphal entry, as you recall, when Jesus gave instructions for the disciples to go and to secure a donkey and a colt, for the Lord has need of them. And again, in fulfillment of prophecy, he rides in, and the crowds acknowledge him, in this instance, as one, a conquering king, returning to his rightful seat and reign, and they provided him with cloaks upon which he could walk and praises for his ears. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. Verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he, that is Jesus, sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is Matthew chapter 21, verses 9 through 15. The record continues with him turning over the tables as we've read, healing the blind and the lame, which incidentally is a reversal of an incident that happened all the way back in 2 Samuel 5, where the Jebusites themselves, they taunted David, saying, the blind and the lame will prevent you from entering Jerusalem. The son of David comes in 21.14, and the blind and the lame are healed by the touch of his hand. And these are the wonderful things that he does, and the children continue to cry, Hosanna to the son of David. But as this record continues to unfold, that which stirred the hearts of these crowds and these children to cry out in praise, the very same thing stirred the hearts of the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the the religious rulers to harden themselves against the Lord of glory. And so at the end of Matthew 23, it's as if the uh, narrative has come full circle. And Jesus says, pointing to these Pharisees, these hypocrites, he says, until you confess... What these children have spoken in in chapter 21, then you will not see me again. Meaning the Jesus who comes to you humbly and in God's condescension with grace and mercy, sharing the riches of the kingdom of God for your blessed and privileged ears will not do so anymore. You will not meet me on those terms until you say... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It reminds us of the message of the gospel. Unless one becomes like a little child and has faith, like Jesus says, as one of these, they surely will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The children confess in the temple courtyard, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the Son of David. And these proud, self-serving, hypocritical Pharisees who are motivated by greed and hypocrisy, and self-indulgence, they must make themselves like a little child, humble themselves, and embrace the Beatitudes, confess that their heart stands in opposition to the Messiah, affirm His Lordship, recognize Him as the fulfillment of the prophets of old, cast themselves at His feet, and beg for forgiveness for their sins. 
And until they do, until they offer, like Arana did, their entire livelihood, lay down their lives, take up his cross, and follow him, pay homage to the Son of David, they will not receive atonement for the landscape of their sin-plagued heart. This is the context of the woes of Matthew 23. Secondly, let's move to conflict. Again, I mentioned before that there's a sort of coming a, a confluence of streams prophetically coming to a head. And there's a, as if through the history of redemption, there's conflict that has been building and certain factions that have been at war with one another and at odds are about to draw their swords and with sparks and the sound of war clash and the victor will soon be declared. Under conflict, consider Jesus' judicial proclamation, verses 33 and 34. He says of the Pharisees, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? That is a judicial proclamation. A sentence to hell because they have been found guilty. But notice this word, this judicial proclamation, will be echoed by others. Verse 34, Jesus says, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Jesus is referencing in, uh, earlier in this passage the tombs of those, that those who are like-minded with the Pharisees had already martyred. You witness against yourself, he says in verse 31, that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. But now he is saying, as he himself delivers this prophetic judgment, this judicial proclamation, it is implied that they will kill him. And thirdly, there is going to be another set, and this speaks of the patience, long-suffering, and the kindness of our God, that though his servant, that though his uh, those the lost and those who need to hear the gospel, hearts are set against the truth. He yet sends ministers anyway. In the future, Jesus will commission prophets, wise men, and scribes, and these very men who now have stopped their spiritual ears from the hearing of truth will take up sword and take up lashes against them as well. This is a reminder for us in a day where the truth of Jesus Christ and the unequivocal declaration of the authority of Him to give and to deliver His Word once for all and for all time sounds like poison and grates against the ears of the hearers in our nation and our culture today. What if those we are called to reach stop their ears, turn us away, What if they take lashes and the shackles of prison up against us? What if they kill us for our faith? Have we died in vain? We can see from our passage today that that is certainly not the case. Though killing, crucifixion, flogging, and persecution sometimes attend the way of those who are called as heralds to bring the message of the gospel, they do not die in vain. And in part, their message is one of judicial proclamation. Their death will stand as a witness against those who killed them should they not repent. And in some cases, their death stands as a witness against them that the perpetrator sees, that the sinner sees, 
and all of a sudden the hideous nature of his own crimes comes to his attention and he repents of his own sin. This happened at the death of Christ himself. Do we we remember the centurion who stood there as the rocks were split and the sky was darkened and the Son of Man was crucified before him and he confessed with his mouth, surely this man was the Son of God. Jesus hung as a judicial witness against his crime. He had murdered the son of David. He had murdered the only sinless man whose steps ever graced this world, this earth. He had killed him in cold blood. He had been complicit complicit with the whole affair. And suddenly, as Jesus is there hanging on this cruel cross, the judicial proclamation of his own death cuts to the heart Of this man, and he confesses the truth. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. If the darkness of our day increases, and if we have to, to some degree, suffer for our faith, it can serve to glorify God in manifold ways. So strong and so precious is this truth that when the disciples, who were the ones, they heard these words of Jesus, they knew exactly to whom he referred, especially after the Holy Spirit came them came upon them, the apostles, the disciples, they knew that they would be sent forth to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, and in part what they would endure is killing, crucifixions, flogging, and persecutions. What was their attitude towards this call? They counted it joy to suffer for Christ's name's sake. This is the context with which Jesus' words are delivered. Christ, or it is announced that Christ is placing his enemies under his feet, and he is doing it in ways, in fact, that stagger our minds, but in the end show him to be glorious and powerful. You might think it counterintuitive that laying our lives down for the gospel is the way that Christ defeats his enemies, but make no mistake, that judicial proclamation will be answered for either in this life or at the, at the final judgment, ultimately, no one will escape. If we recall before this section in chapter 22, Jesus had said of himself, recalling the prophecies of old in verse 43, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. In this proclamation... Jesus was announcing that the enemies that the Pharisees represented would be put under his feet. They would be put under his feet at the time when he defeated death itself in his own crucifixion. They would be systematically and incrementally put under his feet as his disciples went forward. As the prophets, those with the call, like the prophets, the wise men and the scribes of old, announced his truth. And for as many days as he should tarry, for all of those who went forth and suffered, they too would announce that our King Jesus was triumphant and he was subduing his enemies and one by one they are being placed under his feet. Notice that this announcement of judicial proclamation is also attended by compassion. We'll touch on this a little bit more in our third point today. But when we go out and proclaim, when we announce that Jesus Christ is perfect and holy, and that His Word is a standard of perfection that all fall short of, 
but all are judged by, it is an offensive word to the unbeliever because the message of the gospel in our ears shows us, first of all, our sin, our wickedness, our depravity. The Pharisees didn't like to hear this. They didn't like to hear that they were whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inside were full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. They resented when Jesus pulled the mask and the facade away to reveal the decrepit nature of their own depravity. They wanted that sheen of hypocrisy to fool others so that they could secure the best places of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, the greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But the gospel fell on their ears, and it stripped away that of pseudo-holiness and that pseudo-impressive exterior, and it showed them that they were sinful like all the rest of mankind, and they must repent. This message is offensive to the ears of any culture, lost in sin, but it seems especially ours today. As we increasingly celebrate our sin rather than feeling ashamed for it in this nation today. But as we bring that message of clear judicial proclamation that all men must answer for their sin and they will stand before a holy God to give an account and the only way to be judged uh, acceptable in His presence is to receive the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus' blood As they hear that message, it can also come in love, and it ought to. The truth in love is our call. Jesus models this for us, even in this passage. Secondly, under conflict, you have this judicial proclamation that sharpens the terms between one side and the other. Secondly, we have this uh, this reference to all the righteous blood. And this is an interesting detail indeed. In verse 35, back in Matthew 23, it says, So that on you may come, Jesus proclaiming judgment on the Pharisees, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. You see in this passage that there is a text that is referred to, or there's an event that is referred to in history. And if you turn to Second Chronicles, we can perhaps uh, see to what Jesus refers to what Jesus refers. There is a debate on this topic, but we can at least this passage at least gives us a good idea of the main of the main thrust of Jesus' words in Matthew 23, Second Chronicles 24, verse 20. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Notice the context. He is bringing this uh, prophetic word of Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. He is saying, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord? He is one of those that would well fit into Matthew 23, 30, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part, the Pharisees falsely say, in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Jesus begs to differ, saying, you witness against yourselves, you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Events like this have happened before, in other words, and they're about to repeat them in the death of Christ. Back to 2 Chronicles 24, it says, because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. And then verse 21, 
but they conspired against him. And by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness of Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, that Zechariah's father had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. May the Lord see and avenge. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, the first martyr of all, if you will, is his story is recorded for us. Verse 3, In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Verse 6, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, uh, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and Abel and killed him. You see here that the acceptance of Abel's offering was a condemnation that so offended Cain that instead of seeking favor and mercy, in the mercy of God, he killed the one who brought judicial proclamation against him, the acceptance of his brother Abel's offering. The Lord came to Cain in verse 9, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The very first martyr, shortly after original sin evidenced itself, Adam and Eve fell into sin. The very next chapter records the blood of Abel killed by his brother, crying out for justice from the ground. Second Chronicles is the last book as it appears in the Hebrew canon. And the last martyr recorded in Second Chronicles was Zechariah. And at the end of his account, we have this cry when he was dying. He said, May the Lord see and avenge. Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 6, excuse me. There is a record from heaven's eye view of those who have suffered for Christ's name and whose death at the hands of their persecutors has gone up before the Lord and awaits judgment. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When Jesus refers to to the righteous blood, he does so in the context of the scope of redemptive history. From the very beginning when Abel was killed to the end of the canon when Zechariah was killed, or perhaps it was Zechariah, the minor prophet, who wrote, which also appears at the end or towards the end by date of when the Old Testament was recorded. The point is this, that things were coming to a head right now, and the conflict of the justice that innocent blood cries out for and the judgment upon those who would perpetrate such a thing are coming to a head 
and there is going to be a conflict and a clash. Jesus says again, Matthew 23, 35, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. You can see here that also in the context that Jesus himself affirms the Old Testament canon in the context here. And the scope of recorded history that is authoritative, that reveals the events that the Holy Spirit chose to record, Jesus says from the beginning to the close of the Old Testament canon, the martyr's blood that cries out for justice will be visited upon this generation. And thirdly, under conflict, we have this time or this point in history of things coming to a head, again referred to in verse 36. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. If we go back to Genesis 3, we see the history of this conflict to which Jesus refers in one verse that becomes the theme for all of Scripture. God bringing judgment on the serpent says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The curses for sin will take shape in enmity or conflict between two types of people, the believer and the unbeliever, spoken of here in this literary picture as the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan. And then it will come to a point, that is, this conflict will come to a head when literally he that is, the seed of the woman, shall bruise the serpent's head. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In the context, again, of Matthew 23, you see now why Jesus uses the descriptive language of serpents and vipers. In 23.33 of our passage in Matthew, he points out the Pharisees, the nature of their hardness of heart against him, and he says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? All the way back in Genesis 3, the seed of the serpent is spoken of. And the devil using this means, those who are allied with him will make war on the seed of the woman. Just as he did against Cain, against Zechariah, against every martyr whose story is recorded in Revelation chapter 6 or whose record is included in Revelation chapter 6. And the conflict will come to a point of of striking climax, the cross of Calvary itself. And at this point, Satan will incite his operatives and they will take the life of Jesus Christ himself. Will this mean great loss? Is this the ultimate of all defeats? Or is something more in view here? Something more is in view. Acts 4.27 For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now look, Lord, now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal 
and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You see where the apostles recognized what had taken place. That as Jesus was anticipating the cross, they knew that that conflict would come to a head. And the sons of the serpent, if you will, this brood of vipers would conspire to bruise the, uh, to bruise the head of Jesus Christ, as it were. But he will bruise his heel. Or to, uh, to using that language of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Again, it's all coming to the point of conclusion and fulfillment. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, excuse me, and you shall bruise his heel. And we see even in the record that it was not an ultimate defeat. The mortal head wound was inflicted by Satan himself and Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Finally this morning, compassion. The woes of Matthew 23 in conclusion. We've seen something of their context. We've seen something of this conflict that has been taking shape since uh, all the way back to Genesis 3. And finally, we see a tone that Jesus strikes in conclusion that is compassionate. He says in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Both fear of God, the fear of God, and the love of Christ are featured in this record. I couldn't figure out a way to highlight Jesus' amazing tone in this proclamation of judgment as he weeps, as it were, over Jerusalem. The repeated refrain, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, signals lament, crying out on behalf of those who are soon to be judged, and rightly so. I couldn't find a way to say it better than this bit of commentary from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, so I wanted to read it to you today. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how ineffably grand and melting is this apostrophe. It is the very heart of God pouring itself forth through human flesh and speech. It is this incarnation of the innermost life and love of deity pleading with men, bleeding for them, and ascending only to open his arms to them and win them back by the power of his story of matchless love that has conquered the world that will yet draw all men unto him and beautify and ennoble humanity itself. Later he says, I would have gathered thee, he says, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. Was ever imagery so homely invested with such grace and such sublimity as this at our Lord's touch? And yet how exquisite the figure itself of protection, rest, warmth, and all manner of conscience, conscious well-being in those poor, defenseless, dependent little creatures as they creep under and feel themselves overshadowed by the capacious and kindly wing of the mother bird. If wandering beyond hearing of her peculiar call, they are overtaken by a storm or attacked by an enemy, what can they do but in one case droop and die and in the other submit or be torn to pieces? But if they can reach in time their place of safety under the mother's wing, in vain will an enemy try to drag them hence." 
from rising into strength, kindling into fury, and forgetting herself entirely in her young, she will let the last drop of her blood be shed out and perish in defense of her precious charge rather than yield them to an enemy's talents. How significant all this of what, all this of what Jesus is and does for men under his great mediatorial wing would he have gathered Israel. There's a note also in this commentary that the ancient rabbis had an expression for proselytes, that is, those who were a convert to the one true God, they would say that they come under the wings of the Shekinah. What is converting? What is surrender to the Messiah? What is being found among in good standing in the favor of the Lord? It was described as the coming under the wings of the Shekinah, the mediatorial wing as it were. And as yet, there remains today. Brothers and sisters, today is the day of salvation. And we can flee to, these refu- to this refuge, to these wings of Jesus Christ, and find there protection, shelter, and mercy. And this is the heart of Jesus Christ. Even as He brings this word of judicial proclamation against the brood of vipers who if they do not repent will certainly not escape being sentenced to hell and upon this entire generation will come the judgment due the blood of the righteous from uh, Abel all the way through Zechariah. This is truth and love. This is truth and love that we can look to and model as we seek to be faithful in proclaiming the Lord and His Word. Under this section of compassion, where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, as it were, and cries out and lament, we also see that there is, nevertheless, this proclamation, verse 38, See your house is left to you desolate. As we see the context behind this word, we find chapter 24, verse 1, being one of the saddest scriptures and phrases in all of the biblical record. Why is this the case? Well, it is because in Isaiah 6, we see an account where the prophet sees the holiness of God and witnesses His glory. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on His throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is filled with his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips." You see, where the glory of the Lord tarries, those who tarry with it confess their sins. But when they are hard and obstinate of heart, the glory of the Lord departs, and they are left to their own devices, which will be the judgment that their sin deserves. This is the context. In John, the book of John, the great gospel that highlights so many of these Uh, truths in Scripture and brings to our attention how they are fulfilled in Christ. We see in chapter 12, verse 41, that Jesus Christ Himself is the glory that Isaiah saw in the temple. John chapter 12, again, verse 41, Isaiah said these things 
because he saw his glory, that is the glory of Jesus, and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. For they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Those who resisted the glory, remember glory versus Jerusalem? That is, those who resisted Christ, they stayed in the synagogue, but Jesus left. If they had submitted to Christ, if they had taken refuge in the shadow of His wings, the glory, and recognized that the glory had actually arrived, this was the glory of God returning to His temple, they would have found salvation and forgiveness for their sins. They would have found refuge and shelter in the Almighty. They would have found in His blood a Savior who could cleanse them from all sin. They would have cried, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Which is, of course, the last words of our text. Notice in 24.1 of the book of Matthew, Jesus left the temple and was going away. As I said before, if Isaiah saw the glory of God filling the temple, if it so moved him to cry out in awestruck reverence, woe is me. If John chapter 12 identifies Jesus Christ himself is the glory, then Matthew identifies the glory returning to the temple. And if that glory leaves, so does the hope of Israel. And as Jesus left the temple, it was a signal of doom for this generation. If they did not follow him, they would die in their transgressions and would not escape the sentence of hell. But if they recognized that where he went was to Calvary, and on that cross he would shed the very blood by which they could be saved, they would find refuge ultimately in the shadow of his wings. What is the essence in closing, therefore, of this conditional confession? Blessed is he. What is the essence of that confession? What must be true of our heart in order for us to utter with sincerity, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, it is to hear the word of Christ and to submit and to surrender to his word. To not take issue with it, but simply to lay our hearts bare before his decree, you are wicked, yet in me you have a sufficient Savior. A day will come, brothers and sisters, and may we be counted among them, where the fullness of Christ is realized by the fullness of His people. And on that day, when all of the elect cry out, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, the fulfillment of this passage in its ultimate form will be realized, and Christ will return for His bride. And thus, this confession is the hopeful expectation of His return. So if you can cry with me this morning, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord then you have the joyful expectation of saying those words again one day, even if you are killed in the meantime for your faith, saying those words one day with all the righteous who went before and all who will follow us who place their faith in Jesus Christ, their Savior and Lord. Let us close in prayer. Father in heaven, this morning we cry out to you, that you, through the means of your word, would soften the hardness of our heart if there is any resistance to the gospel that we find there. I pray that it would soften us, that it would make us cry out, Lord Jesus, for salvation, to listen to the fearful rebuke and to cry out for salvation if we do not know you yet.
to submit to the chastening of the Lord if we do and there be any wicked way in us, Lord, that you seek to put your finger on to correct. I pray as you do so, Lord, that we would recognize the compassionate, mediatorial wings of Jesus Christ are a sufficient refuge for us to run to and be safe. I pray, Lord, that these words would stay with us as we leave this place, that they would attend our way, that they would work out in us, Lord Jesus, a heart of commitment to you, come what may, knowing that you, as our Savior and Lord, defeated death and therefore will raise us up on that final day to the praise of your glorious grace. We thank you that your glory has returned and we confess with Scripture and with all those who place faith in the great Messiah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.